morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Hopefully uh, everyone's had their fill this last week of food. Um, maybe not. Maybe you still have a lot of leftovers, still working on it, but uh, that's great. Hopefully you also had some time to spend with some family, although I'm sure many family gatherings are a little bit less this year than maybe normal, but we still are people who have much, much, much to be thankful for. Um, let's pray. God, we do thank you and we praise you for you, Lord. You are God. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us. You are in our presence today. Lord, I thank you that uh, there are many in this world who cannot, cannot gather, Lord, in this way for fear or whatever, restrictions by government or whatever it may be. We know, Lord, that where two or three are gathered, you are in their midst. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in this world. But we pray, Lord, that they would be thankful, Lord, for the grace and the mercy that is bestowed on them as it is upon us. And may your word speak to us mightily, Lord, this morning. Work among us. Amen. Many of you know that we uh, served as missionaries uh, with team in Prague, Czech Republic. And for a couple years, we were working in this area of Skalka uh, that was uh, a church plant that was going on there. And there was a man there by the name of Pavel, very common Czech name, that uh, means Paul in English. And Pavel was uh, a very jovial man, uh, loved music, um, probably I think he also looked a little bit like Santa Claus. Maybe that's why he was jovial. I don't know. But he was also a man who really desired to serve the Lord. He loved the Lord. But his outlook wasn't always like that. Here is a little bit of Pavel's testimony. In 1953, when I was 11 years old, my father, a Baptist pastor, was put in prison without charges and without a trial. The Czechoslovak communist regime imprisoned all Baptist pastors and ordered them to falsely testify against each other. Since my father refused, he was tortured. They cut off one of his fingers, and he had to stay in prison for over three years. After he was released, he never preached again, and shortly after, my mother died. I grew up under the influence of the communist regime, and my heart became cold, and I wandered away from the Lord for many years. It was not until the communists were overthrown in 1989 that I renewed my commitment to the Lord and my desire to follow Him. By God's amazing grace, my wife experienced a dramatic conversion and we began to attend various churches together, even though we joined, never joined any of them. Until the fall of 2006, Paul and his wife joined the church at Skalka. You know, those years following World War II and into the early 1950s were not easy years to be a pastor, let alone a Christian, and then Czechoslovakia. But why were people like Pavel's father so resolute in their faith? Why, why did Pavel, after so many years, turn back to God? I think in the book of Jude, we see in just 25 verses, we see that those in Christ are securely kept in the faith. And those in Christ contend for the faith. Not necessarily a set of verses uh, for this time of year, right, for Advent. We don't necessarily look at Jude for Advent. But 
What about thinking about what we have in Christ? What we have in Christ, and maybe that will give us even more joy when we begin to celebrate his coming to this earth. Begin with the end in mind, right? A little background of the book. Uh, Jude here says that he is uh, the brother of James. So Jude uh, is giving that, obviously, to state some sort of credibility or authority about what he's about to write. So James must be somebody that is known. Uh, it's probably not the James, one of the 12 disciples. He was um, probably already, he was already dead at this point when Jude was writing. So it's most likely James, the leader of, one of, the, of the church in Jerusalem, the one who wrote the book of James, half-brother of Jesus. So that would make Jude also the half-brother of Jesus. And just like James and all the other half-brothers of Jesus, they did not believe in Jesus until after Jesus' resurrection. We read that in the Gospels. But Jude opens the book the same way James opened his book, a servant of Christ, or in some, a slave of Christ. Perhaps coming to the conclusion that I once denied this, but now I am fully and completely surrendered to Christ. I want to point out three major points to what Jude says here in this book. First, those in Christ are distinct. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So, who are these distinct? Who are these distinct? First, do you notice something uh, about what Jude writes? He doesn't necessarily talk about his audience, per se. He's not uh, characterizing his audience so much. It's, he's not saying, to those who are great people, to those who are wise and understanding, those who are all knowledgeable, to those who are persecuted. He doesn't say that. The focus is not on the, you or I or on the audience. The focus is on the one who has done these things, the one who is called, the one who is loved, the one who keeps. The focus is all on God. God alone has accomplished these things according to his sovereign purpose and plan. Don't pass over that verse so quickly because it's imperative. It's, it's really necessary when you look at the last two verses of the book. Kind of briefly about these three things that Jude mentions about who these people are. First, the distinct people are called. What do we mean by called? We probably could spend uh, several weeks just talking about this word called, about what it means to be called. But we could maybe say that it's a, a general invitation, a general calling to people. Uh, Matthew 22, Jesus talked about a, a wedding feast that a king was having, and he just made a general announcement. Not everybody came, though. But context is very important. That's not at all what Jude means. He is talking to a specific group of people. The called are like what Paul says in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. They are those who God has sovereignly and graciously chosen to save. They are distinct. He invite, God alone has invited them into this relationship with him. These distinct people are also loved. 
In some translations, it says, beloved by God the Father. In the King James, it says, sanctified by God the Father. So Jude is, again, referring to a specific group of people. They are those who are loved. They are set apart. Often in the New Testament, this word beloved is a reference to the church. So he's referring to those who are in Christ, those who are set apart as God's children. Just like Jesus had an incredibly deep relationship with God the Father. You see that throughout the Gospels. I only did what the Father asked me to do. I only did that. He loved the Father. He had that deep, special relationship. So we, the church, have that same special, deep relationship with God. We are his loved ones. These distinct people are also kept. This third word is very important because Jude uses it several times throughout this book. Uh, his recipients are those kept for Christ. We'll touch upon this again at the end of the book, but it's similar to what Paul writes in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So it's that same picture in mind of being kept. He began the work. He will complete the work. You are kept. There's no fear. You are in Christ. That's a promise, a promise to hold to. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The followers of Christ have complete confidence that they will be with God forever and ever. There is no fear no fear. I hope that brings hope to you at this time of year in a world that there is a whole lot of hopelessness. So that is what these distinct people are. Loved, kept, called. Who are they not? We're not going to cover this point uh, verse by verse, but in verses 4 through 16, you kind of see a lot of what these people are not. Here, in a nutshell, is a little bit of it. They're ungodly. They pervert the grace of God. Well, what does it mean to pervert the grace of God? Basically, they understand God's grace a little bit. They understand that it's unmerited favor, but they take it for a license to sin. They say, oh, I can do whatever I want. God's grace will cover me. It doesn't matter what I do. They pervert God's grace. They're blasphemers. They deny Christ. They indulge in sexual morality. They reject authority. Here's a couple ones that we want to think were on this list. They're grumblers, malcontents, boasters, follow their own ways. Not a list of things you want to be a part of. But Jude mentions something that's really interesting in verse 4. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. We read the same of Paul in Acts 20, 28 to 29. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The people Jude's talking about are not ones that are outside the walls of the church. They're not ones who have never intermingled with believers and seemingly walked with them. 
They walked in the, through the front door, if you will. And they were there to deceive God's children, to distort God's truth. Now, we welcome all people through the front doors of Bethel Church. It's not like we're out there with a clipboard asking 20 questions. Uh, you know, Gary, can you please tell me what is the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ before you can come in this door? Um, wrong answer, please exit. We're not, we're not doing that. But we will not be ashamed to preach and teach the whole totality of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. For truth is truth from eternity to eternity because it's embodied in God himself, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We will be mindful of who's teaching and leading classes and how we would encourage others in their study. Not at all as a means to censor, but as a means to contend for the faith, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, Jude gives some examples of God's past judgment on people. Um, and he's given these examples to warn them about what happened to people who abandoned the faith. These are examples that we can read in Scripture and these people would have known as well. The example of the Israelites who died in the wilderness for their unbelief, not believing that God was going to take them into the promised land. The example of angels who rebelled against God. See Genesis 6-4, Job 1-6. The example of the destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah for their complete sexual immorality. You may say, hey, I don't recognize those ones down there in like verse 8, 9, 14, and 15. Uh, they're not in my Bible. Well, you're not going to find them in your Bible. Jude uses uh, two um, non-biblical sources. They were examples from probably people would have known those sources at that time known those stories. The first is from what commentaries would say is from the Assumption of Moses, a book called the Assumption of Moses. The second from the book of Enoch. And he's not doing it. He's not giving them any sort of spiritual authority by doing so. Paul did something very similar when he quoted from uh, external sources, from poems in Acts 17.28 and 1 Corinthians 15.33. But now what to make of all these examples and how it relates to us. First of all, none of those things listed in verses 4 through 16 should be anything that characterizes and defines you if you're a believer in Christ. But let me add this to that. And this is where it might be kind of difficult to grasp. Bethel Church, the Biofellowship Church denomination, firmly believes in what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Or, you may have heard, eternal security. Or maybe in a very much lesser uh, stronger, not a less strong, yeah, a weaker sense of one saved, always saved, which kind of goes, well, I said a prayer many years ago, and hey, I'm covered, um, once saved, always saved, doesn't matter what happens from that point forward. Well, what to make of those who claim to follow Christ, but now deny him completely? Are they saved? You've probably read recently of some uh, maybe Christian musicians or pastors who would have said that prayer and seemingly followed, but now have renounced everything, renounced it all. Some even claiming to be agnostic at this point. What to make of them? In response to these decisions, some other Christian leaders were asked 
about this idea, this doctrine of eternal security. Uh, one of those leaders was Pastor H.B. Charles, pastor in Jacksonville, Florida. He said this, My perseverance in the faith... Well, we'll get it. My perseverance in the faith is not so much about me holding fast to Christ, but him holding fast to me. It doesn't depend on you or me to keep our salvation. If it did, you and I would never get to heaven. That's why... He says, it's about Christ holding fast to me. It wasn't about those people who have fallen away and them trying to strive, but it was about Christ holding fast to them. Pastor John MacArthur said it in this incredible way as well. If you want to think about the wonder of your salvation, think about this. Christ, right now, this split second, is holding on to you eternally in his everlasting arms and will not let you go. Back to how Jude opened his book. The focus is all on God. On him who called, kept, loved. Focus was not on you. So what about those who professed faith and now have renounced everything? Are they eternally secure? Are they saved? I don't know. I don't have the mind and understanding of God to know their hearts. And I don't know what choices they'll make going forward. I will say this much. I'll repeat exactly what Jesus said. Matthew 10, 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whatever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Or what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is saying that there were some who hung out with us. They professed faith. They seemed to profess faith in Christ. They were walking with us. They kind of talked the talk, had that Christian lingo. They seemed to do everything right, but they left it all. They didn't really walk the walk. They were not with us. They abandoned everything. Very hard words for those among us who have loved ones who have fallen away. Pray for them that the God of mercy would be with them, would reach them. It is a work of God, and yes, Jesus is securely holding and keeping his children. But do we have anything to do? Do we have anything to do at all? Moving on to that second point, those in Christ are doers. Look at verse 3 and then 17 through 19. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was e very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions 
worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. We're not saved by works. That would go against other passages of Scripture. But we're not passive in our faith either. We are actively engaged in becoming more and more like Christ. Uh, Jude starts here in verse 3. He switches gears a little, right? He switches gears from talking about what characterizes what God has done. Now he talks a little bit about what these distinct people do. First, they contend for the faith. They contend for the faith. He starts this verse off with a kind of a dilemma. I wanted to talk to you about this salvation that we have, this incredible thing that we have in God. But I'm about to tell you all the things of people who have fallen away. I need to tell you something first. I need to tell you to contend for the faith. Stay strong. It's a phrase not to be taken lightly. Uh, Jude uses a word here for contend that's not often used in the New Testament. It means a very intense, continuous effort, very similar to what Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.25 when he talks about how an athlete competes for the prize. The faith, the whole body of truth, of Scripture, that which is given to us by God, is what we should contend for. Are you one who contends for the faith? One of the roles I have uh, in team is to be a part of our review team. And what we do is we uh, assess applicants who come to us and assess them for theological fit, character, ministry skills, etc. And if, if they are fit, we appoint them. And we probably often give them some requirements to do as well. But it's really interesting, enjoyable actually, to, to read through people's uh, applications and see their views on Scripture, their views on various doctrinal points, their views uh, on whatever, uh, their ministry skills, their testimonies. One of the things that we ask on the application is what they think happens to someone who dies without hearing of Jesus Christ. So often we have that picture of this remote tribe, right, in the middle of the Amazon jungle that has never had any interaction with anybody outside of their own tribe. So obviously they probably have never heard the name Jesus Christ. What happens to them when they die? Won't get into the theological issues behind that or reasons why we should ask that question. But let me ask you this question. Why should anybody send any missionary anywhere in this world, any time, if it wasn't important for everyone to hear of Jesus Christ before they die? Why send a missionary? Why ask a question about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you know that there are other religious systems in this world that think that Jesus was just a good man, but deny that he was deity, deny that he was God? They, there's many others that deny that, Jesus, that God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Can you answer those questions? Jude would say, contend for the faith. But to do so, you need to know what the faith is that we hold to. Verses 17 and 19, Jude said the apostles predicted that people would come to lead you astray. It was happening then, continues to this day, and will continue forward. People will come to lead you astray. People are deceived and question God's truth because they don't know what God says. They don't know His Word. 
If you don't know the basic foundations of our faith or want to sharpen it or deepen it, let's talk. There's plenty of people in this church, I'm sure, too, that would love to walk a journey with you. Now, let's look at verses 20 to 22 and 23. Jude writes here in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So Jude lays out five more things that uh, these distinct people do. Uh, I heard one person say that this, these few verses here, just these couple verses, are a disciple's manual, a discipleship manual. So our second thing is build up in the faith. Now, we've touched upon this already in our previous point with contend for the faith, but it, it goes a little bit more. So, building up one another, practicing the one another commands, right? Spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Show hospitality to one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. It also entails this thing that we seem to be doing uh, a lot on Sunday mornings, right? You've been doing it for many years. Church has been doing this for many years. Corporate worship it entails that as well. Worship is meant so we can glorify God, but to cultivate spiritual growth amongst each other, to spur one another on, to go and fight the fight, to contend for the faith. Build up in the faith in order to cultivate growth amongst each other. The third, Jude says there in verse 20, pray in the faith, praying in the spirit. I think this is very applicable to Bethel's vision statement. We exist to be a Spirit-led, God-glorifying community, etc. That linchpin to the vision statement, in case you don't know, is spirit-led. It's all about being spirit-led. And being spirit-led means having a good prayer life. Praying confidently and earnestly in the power of the Spirit and in step with His will. On his deathbed, John Bunyan, author of the famous Christian book, Pilgrim's Progress, had this. The spirit of prayer is more precious than treasure of gold and silver. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. Do you know the Spirit's will, his desire? Are you confident that he is able to do abundantly more than you could ask or imagine? Pray with that conviction. Pray in the Spirit. Fourth, keep in the faith. Or as Jude says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is not a reference simply to love one another, but it gets back to reflection on what we must do as a believer. Remain faithful to God. Abide in Him. Obey Him. I was uh, recently reading a, a book on church planting, and the author of the book had a story from Elvis Presley, uh, his life. Um, we're not going to do Elvis Presley impersonations. That would be a pretty embarrassing for me. <laughs> but apparently Elvis's family was poor growing up. And, but his church that he was attending uh, had a summer camp that you could attend every year. Uh, Elvis's family didn't have money to send them. But the church said, 
that if you can memorize 350 verses a year, you could go for free. Elvis went for free for five years. Assuming each year they were different verses, that means Elvis memorized 1,750 verses. Now, I don't claim to know his heart, but seemingly knowing those verses didn't really change his life. The author of the book I was reading said this, Bible knowledge without life change is just a hobby. Obey God and what he says to do. Live it out. Keep in the faith. Fifth, wait in the faith. Jude says waiting for the mercy or in the New American Standard, waiting anxiously. This is having a present uh, anticipation, might add joy, at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When our mercy, when the mercy we have been given is seen, when we see Jesus face to face, those who are kept in Christ look to the eternal. We're not just fixed on the temporal, the here and now. This is not our home. Heaven is what we look to. Do you wait with eager anticipation and anxiousness for that day? The day is imminent. Do you have a sense of urgency to do what God has called you to do? Now 6, verses 22 to 23 touches upon the mercy we show others. So show mercy in the faith. There's three types of others or people that Jude is referring to here. Those who doubt, those close to the fire, and those who have probably already left the faith. They're gone. They're out the door. For those who doubt, show mercy. Though they may be asking questions, that's it. That They're just asking questions. They don't have one foot out the door. Walk with them. Talk with them. Don't let them just stumble, though. Walk that journey with them. Help them find the answers to their questions. Encourage them along the way. For those close to the fire, show mercy. They may have one foot out the door. Because it all the ways of the world, the things that they see in the world are enticing. They seem pleasing. Maybe for them, it's like what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. For them, the time is now. Warn them. Warn them and show mercy now. For the third group, they've already left. They're out. They're gone. Left the door. But... Just as you've been shown mercy, show them mercy. Pray for them. Walk with them. Talk with them. Hang out with them. It's all right. Don't treat them like they're outcasts. Share the gospel. But Jude says, be careful. They know some of the lingo and they've left it. Be careful that you too don't get enticed and leave or be... uh, Deceived into believing a lie. There are your six kind of principles, six points for those who are in Christ, what they do. Now, verses 24 and 25. Let's read those. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless 
before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Those in Christ are distinct. Those in Christ are doers. And those in Christ are destined for glory. Jude started with what God did. He called, he loved, he kept. And now he ends with this incredible closing of the same. Often in your Bible, you'll see maybe a heading above these two verses that says doxology. Doxology is a declaration of praise to God. So what is he worthy of praise? Why is he worthy of praise? What is God doing? Notice not what did God do, not what will he do, but what is he doing? Present tense, what is he doing right now? Going back to what MacArthur said, he is right now, this split second, holding you, keeping you, and not wanting to let go, and will not let go. In light of all the things that we see in the world, of all the things that are so easy to distract you and pull you away from God, of all the things you have seen other people walk away from God, how is it even possible to have the assurance yourself that you are walking with God, that you are His children? Jude says this incredible thing. Now unto Him who is able to keep you. Not only does God call you and chose you by His sovereign will, but He also in His omnipotence, His almighty power, He keeps you. And He will not let you fall completely into utter ruin. In a nutshell, God will not lose any of His children. They will persevere. It isn't that you will live a sinless, perfect life. That's not it. But you will live in newness of life. You will have that desire when you slip, when you fall. You have that desire to draw back to God in repentance and forgiveness. God is able to keep you from falling totally, totally away from Him. Do you believe that? Does that give you joy this year? What is just as amazing is that not only does He eternally keep you, but in spite of all the sin that we commit, the missteps along the way, He presents you blameless. Blameless. Paul says that in Colossians 1.22, He, meaning Christ, has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. God is not up there saying, when you come to him, he's not up there saying, yeah, but you lied. You cheated and you denied me before your friend. Get out of my sight. He's not saying that the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, is given unto you. And that is how he sees you. Completely guiltless and blameless. That's amazing. Finally, what is God receiving? What should he receive every single moment of every day? Glory and honor and praise. 
For he is the only God. There is only one true God. There is only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that is what you believe, he is worthy of praise, of glory, of majesty, of dominion, both now and forevermore. Believe that. Live it. If you're here today and professed your faith in Christ, given your life to him, you are kept in Christ. You are secure in him. There is no worry of your eternal home. But just as Jude gives a strong warning, I would warn you, I would urge you to be doers, to be doers. Contend for the faith, show mercy, build up, keep, wait. For those in Christ are securely kept in the faith, but those in Christ contend for the faith. We do, not out of compulsion, not out of a means to earn God's favor. We could not. But we do, out of a response to his incredibly enormous, gracious, compassionate love that he has given unto us. And you know what? Doing those things as well is evidence that God's at work in you and that you are his child. The Holy Spirit is giving you newness of life. He's working in you. He's affirming. He's attesting. I have you. You are mine. You know, I've been coming here for many years, and um, I see that cross every Sunday morning. And I'm reminded of a lot of what we just talked about here in the last number of minutes. I don't know what you think about when you see that cross. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's just a picture of a guy, name was Jesus, came here to earth, lived a good life, died a horrible death for no real reason. Maybe for you, it's like, you know, this is just a bunch of stories. It's all a myth. It isn't real. Maybe you just don't know what to think. Maybe you just don't care. I will tell you this truth, and I'm sure every single person in this room would agree. None of us will defy death. And none of us knows when the time will come. Are you 100% certain of what you have come to understand when you see that cross? I urge and plead with you not to let the day pass without speaking to someone, without wrestling deeply with that. Is Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life? Am I 100% confident that he is holding me fast, that I'm kept in the faith? Let's pray. God, we need to come to you in humility an understanding, Lord, of whom we are and whom you are. And we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for you have called us unto yourself. You have accomplished this work of salvation. You continue it. And you work in us to have that joy, 
that your joy may be made complete in us. God, we thank you and we praise you. Our salvation does not depend on our works, but it depends on the works and the righteousness of Christ. And for that, we are grateful. And I pray this Christmas season, Lord, as we look forward to the birth and the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, as we look to that, may we be filled with joy in knowing what we have in Christ. Amen.